what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at what's known as the monarchy, the period of the monarchy in Israeli history. Um, you may have noticed that the first two classes that we met really were sort of studying stuff outside the Bible. Last week and this week is more in the Bible, and then we're back outside the Bible again because the Bible uh, deals with basically um, you know, the history of Israel just during a limited period of time. So I felt it was important to set up set you up for a couple weeks so you understand the broader Mesopotamian co context, and I hope that was helpful. Last week we talked about Abraham through to the judges. I know it was a long time uh, span to cover. Today we're going to cover several hundred years as well, looking at the, the rise of the, 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 the kingship in Israel and Judah. And then, um, again, next, next week, if you look at your, your course outline, uh, I, guess we'll, well, I guess we'll kind of be in, kind of in and out of the Bible there. We'll talk about exilic Israel, some of the things that were going on during the exiles. And then post-exilic is sort of outside the Bible again because the Bible doesn't really record much of that period of time. 400 years or so before Christ. Um, and then later in the course, we'll look at basically the, the period of time from Christ up till the present. So just to orient you, the material last week and tonight, some of it is probably review for many of you who've studied the Old Testament, but uh, some of it might be new as well. Okay, it, Mark, is the thermostat turned up? I usually turn it up, but I can't remember if I did. Uh, 85, 90. <laughs> 70's good, yeah. <laughs> okay. Make you feel like you're in Israel in the middle of July or something. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Turn it down. <laughs> Turn it down and put a spotlight on that lady. <laughs> okay. Now, um,. In studying this myself, in order to prepare for tonight's lecture, I actually learned several things that I thought were really interesting that, would, that helped me to understand why some of the kings of Israel and Judah did what they did. And uh, I, I want to share some of that with you tonight. We, we will be reviewing basic timeline of events that are found within the Bible, but there's some unique cultural dimensions and dynamics that were taking place in ancient times that also had a profound effect upon the kings that we may not necessarily think about when we're reading through the Bible, because generally we, we read through the Bible with tunnel vision. We're reading what the Bible tells us, but we're not necessarily taking into consideration the broader context within which they lived. So understanding the broader context within which they live and some of the political realities that they experience is going to help you to understand, for instance, why Manasseh acted the way Manasseh acted, etc. So we're going to kind of go in the Bible and out of the Bible, in the Bible and out of the Bible tonight. What I wanted to do is to introduce you to a concept that is very, very important for you to grasp if you're going to benefit from our lecture tonight. And that is the, uh, the concept of vassalage. Now you may have, if, you ever, if you've ever studied, for instance, medieval European history, you may be familiar with like the feudal system where a lord would own a vast area of land 
and the serfs, the peasants, would live kind of under his lordship. And in exchange for military security and maybe some basic necessities like uh, you know, keeping a, a, a freshwater river open in that territory so they could have water, they would farm for him. They would pay him tributes, various systems that were set up. But basically, generation after generation, you lived under someone else's uh, protection. You lived on his land. And the problem was he could like kick you off anytime, and you, you basically had nothing, right? Well, a similar, slightly different, but a similar concept existed in Mesopotamia and in the ancient Near East in general, and that is vassalage. So this is my definition. I mean, somebody else might be more accurate with it, but this is how I understand it. So vassalage occurs when a monarch, so it could be, a king or some sort of a, a ruler, a person or a nation enters into an obligatory agreement with a more powerful king or nation, which may include financial tribute. So when we talk about tribute tonight, we're going to be talking about basically paying taxes. That's what a tribute is. Military support. So the, the lesser king may be called upon by the greater king if he's in a pinch to send soldiers, or even the adoption of his religion, or if he's a polytheist, his religions. I want you to keep that one in mind. You may have wondered, why in the world did Israel keep worshiping all these other gods? I mean, they kicked them out. How did they get back into the land? Because many of the monarchs were actually vassals to Assyrian or Babylonian kings at different points in time. And even though they had their own kingdom, they were under the auspices of some of the northern Mesopotamian kings. And as a result of being vassals, those kings demanded that the Israelis allow their gods to be worshipped in Israeli land. And that is why many of the kings who grew up as Yahwists, meaning worshippers of Yahweh, wound up building high places to Baal and whatnot, because it was actually part of the political structure within which we lived. It's not an excuse, but they didn't just pull Baal out of the air and drop him on you know, Mount Jerusalem. They were required to worship these gods if they were to uh, stay out of fights with the more powerful king and other forms of homage. So what we're going to discover tonight is that while we have a long list of kings to look at in both united and divided Israel, some of them were independent they were strong. They were able to defend their own territory. Most of them were vassal kings. And if you read between the lines in the Bible, you know, you look at a guy like Hezekiah, Sennacherib's knocking on his door. It's because he's his vassal, and for a period of time he rebelled against him. So understanding that allows you to understand to a greater degree why Sometimes they had to give away cities, they had to give away money, they had to send soldiers. Sometimes the north didn't get along with the south because the south was aligned with Babylon. The north was trying to create its own system, yada, yada, yada. So vassalage is something, this is a concept you have to understand and keep in mind in order to appreciate what we're going to be discussing tonight. Any questions or any additional comments you'd like to make with regard to this, this concept of vassalage? Yes, sir.
but it, it's more king by king? Were they enforced as long as... Yeah, they, well, they, in theory, they were enforced as long as the... Uh, uh, you know, the vassal was willing to put up with it. So that could span multiple generations. I mean, if it was working out, there's times in Judah's history where everything was peaceful. The north was getting into all sorts of fights, but they were actually living large because they were vassals and they were okay with that. But a new king might come to the throne and say, forget this, I'm not going to pay these taxes. I'm not going to send soldiers so that the Babylonian king can do his thing. And he'd rebel. So then the question was, well, is your overlord strong enough to enforce his will? And will he? Or can we get away with it for a generation or two? So it, it, did, not, it did not expire uh, dependent upon the kingship. It was an agreement between one nation and another nation. But obviously, depending on the strength of the king ruling, either as the overlord or the vassal, made a big difference as to who was going to you know, win out. Yeah. There are times in Israeli history when Israel had vassals in Moab, Edom, and the surrounding nations as well. Okay. Any other comments or questions about this concept? Let's talk about the kingship. We ended last week with a discussion about the judges. So here's the rundown. 350 years. We're using round numbers. 350 years... Three and a half centuries, the Jews from Joshua onward were in the land of Canaan and they were unofficially led by men and at least one woman known as the judges. Again, when you think judges, you don't think a person with a black robe sitting behind a bench in a court of law. Different, same word, different concept, but the judges were sort of unofficial, theocratic-type rulers under God. They weren't elected. They were recognized. They did not necessarily rule all of Israel at any given time. They may have been really more localized, but generally they were known for their ability to free up the Jews from somebody that was oppressing them, Philistines or Moab or the Midianites or whoever happened to be big, bad, and ugly at the time. However, the final judge, a man by the name of Samuel, comes onto the scene. He is highly respected by his peers. But regardless of how good he was at being a judge, most people liked him, the Philistines were picking on the Jews. And so Israel elected to become a unified monarchy, meaning that all 12 tribes agreed we need one king to rule us. And later, that kingdom would be divided into two kingdoms, one that took the term Judah as its title and one that took the term Israel as its title. So Israel is obviously named after the second name that Jacob received from God, and Judah is named after one of the sons of Jacob because the largest tribe was Judah in that kingdom. And therefore, the period in Jewish history that we call the monarchical period can be divided into two subcategories, the united monarchy and the divided kingdoms. Here's a little map 
I've stretched it sideways a little bit so it's not quite proportionate, but I thought it might be a little easier for you to see this way. Here's a map of Israel, modern day Israel, the area that we would know as modern day Israel is right here. Orient yourself. What's this body of water? What's this body of water? Okay. Down this area, what do we call it? What's this area called? I feel like you're at school, right? Being tested. What's this area called, folks? The Jordan Va uh, Valley. Right. Okay, good. So what's this area then? This is the Central Mountain Range. What's this area? A couple names for it, but... Yeah, it's the plains, so you can call it the coastal plains or the plains of Sharon. So think three strips of land, coastal plains, the central mountain range, and the, the Transjordan Valley, which is part of a broader geographical feature known as the Rift Valley. Then on the other side, this is known as the Transjordan. So when we talk about the Transjordan, we're talking about everything on the other side of the Jordan River. By the way, we didn't identify the Jordan River. This is the Jordan River here. It also is north of the Sea of Galilee. And out in this area, see we have Damascus. We're going to talk about that tonight. Tyre and Sidon are important to be able to identify on a map. This is the area known as Phoenicia, where the Phoenicians are from. And this area is Philistia. Who lived in Philistia? Really short people. No, not really. Tall people known as the Philistines. Philistines or Philistines, whatever you like. I say both. And their capital was Gaza. Uh, sorry, Gath. But Gaza is one of their key. Uh, Gaza, Eshkelon, and uh, Gath are, are three of their key uh, cities. Down here, Egypt. Can you read this? Midian. Who are the Midianites? This is review, of course. Okay, they're descendants of Midian, relatives of the Jews, right? So one of Abraham's sons was Midian, and that's where the Midianites came from. Who's the most famous person we know from Midian? No, he married a Midianite. What was his father-in-law? Jethro or Ruel, his name is. It has two names, Ruel or Jethro. So he's from Midian. Sometimes the Midianites are attacking. The Midianites were also the people that took Joseph to Egypt in slavery. It was Midianite traders that took him south. Edom, okay, these are basically the descendants of Esau, who was the brother of Jacob. Then we have Moab and Ammon. Who are those guys? The sons of Lot through his relationship with his daughters. So these one, two, uh, three, four kingdoms are all distant cousins to the Jews. But just like the southern kingdom and northern kingdom attacked each other and made war and they were like brothers, well, they're obviously fighting with their cousin nations as well. And then up in this area, which is not on our map, is what? Broad region known as Ma Mesopotamia. And that area, including all this area, is known as the 
fertile crescent. Okay, very good. A plus for all of you. This is the King's Highway. This is the King's Highway, a major trade route. And then there's a coastal highway. So these are the two highways. Obviously, they weren't paved with shoulders like we have today, but they're trade routes that the kings of the south and the kings of the north wanted access to. So here are some events that led up to the monarchy. You might think, hey, 350 years, we've been getting, getting along okay with judges. Why bother having a king? Well, here are some critical issues. These guys were bullies. The Philistines. And generation after generation, they were attacking, they were pillaging Jewish settlements to the point that there's no king, so there's no official agreement, but essentially Israel was functioning as a de facto vassalage under the Philistines. The Philistines were the head honchos. They basically had to do whatever they said. The Philistines were also a more advanced civilization. They'd already mastered the art of uh, metallurgy, whereas the Jews had not. So this is a major issue. If you recall, in this general area, two tribes, Benjamin and Ephraim, they were the ones that had taken the biggest beating because of their geographical proximity to Philistia. And therefore, it's not really that much of a surprise that Saul was chosen from Benjamin because they were one of the nations taking the biggest beating from the Philistines. So not only was he selected because he was tall and handsome and wealthy, which the Bible actually tells us, but he was selected because his tribesmen were incensed by the oppression that they were getting at the hands of the Philistines. Several other things to consider. The tribes sometimes got in a little skirmishes with one another. Remember what happened to Benjamin. It was almost decimated because of the whole concubine incident. She was cut up and sent throughout the land. They almost wiped out the Benjaminites. And those kind that was an extreme example, but there was feuding back and forth between all these different tribes. And the elders of Israel felt that if they could bring themselves together, there wouldn't be risk of splitting into 11 or 12 separate kingdoms with no power. If they could unify, then perhaps they could put a lid on reoccurring tribal infighting. Fourth, they became aware that Philistia, some of the northern nations, had kings had installed kings, and their perception was that it was working quite well. So even in the biblical narrative, you have them saying things like, everyone else has one, why can't we have one? So this was uh, influence from culture and the broader political situation. Fifth, fear of attacks from larger nations. So as Moab grows, as Ammon grows, just to use two examples, as the power of Egypt ebbs and flows in the south as the power of Assyria ebbs and flows in the north, you're going to start thinking, man, I, what if we get attacked? What if Issachar gets attacked? Is Zebulun going to show up? Or is it like, I'm not sticking my neck out for you. You're on your own. So the fear of these growing kingdoms around them 
push them towards a desire to be one united kingdom. And then there's a spiritual issue, and this takes the shape in the form of a deficit, and that is that they fail to trust Yahweh God as their divine king. They, from a human perspective, the whole idea of a theocracy, a kingdom ruled by God, that didn't make them uh, sleep too well at night. They wanted physical, tangible protection and assurances. And so in some ways, while there were some political, social dimensions to this, it was also a spiritual deficit that led to the rise of the monarchy. So Samuel reluctantly agrees to uh, appoint a king. Now, I love Samuel, great guy, comes out of interesting circumstances, but let's not assume that Samuel was perfect either. And my evidence for this is that Samuel himself decided to appoint two judges in his old age to replace himself, knowing full well they were not godly men, his two brat sons. And one wonders if maybe Samuel, with an awareness of the political situation, was perhaps even attempting to position his own household for potential kingship. We don't know that, but we know that he was foolish in his intentions to appoint two of his ungodly evil sons to replace him as judges. And it might be, again, the Bible doesn't tell us this, it's moot on this point, but, uh, or mute on this point, but it might be that some of the elders were resistant to the idea of Samuel's sons having some sort of judgeship over them. And so came to him prior to his death to make sure that something else would happen. So in 1050 BC, a man by the name of Saul is selected as king. His father's name was Kish, spelt K-I-S-H, not K-I-S-S. Kish, not Kiss. And really, I've mentioned this already, the reason why he was selected is because he was tall, dark, and handsome. Which does show from the very beginning that the nation of Israel was looking at the outward and not the inward. And this would get them into problems, of course, in the future. His father was wealthy, and it says that basically everyone was shorter than him from the shoulders down. So he was a pretty tall guy. And you might say, well, who really cares? Well, that matters in a generation where you're doing hand-to-hand combat. If you've got a gun and you're five foot zero, and the other guy has a gun and he's seven foot two, it doesn't matter. But when you're swinging a sword, it matters. Okay, you got 300 pounds behind you as opposed to 125 sopping wet. It matters, right? So we got to sort of put ourselves back in that context to understand why he was selected. And he quickly distinguishes himself in battle against the Philistines to his credit. He turns out to be a good soldier, a good warrior, and he solidifies his rule very early on with very minimal opposition. They're excited about this. He's the first guy out of the gates, the first king. He solidifies his rule, and he actually does what they wanted him to. He fends off, fends off the uh, incessant attacks in the Philistines, 
and uh, does quite well. So now we enter into the period of time known as the household of Saul. If you don't read the Bible carefully, you might think that the household of Saul was only composed of one king, but actually there were two kings under the household of Saul, the first one being Saul. As I mentioned, he begins ruling in and around 1050. And what he does is he rallies to his aid several outstanding warriors. So Saul really distinguishes himself not for his economic prowess, not for his ability to establish a good administration, but for his ability to fight. And so he, he is a military man, and he has several warriors at his disposal. Some of his better warriors include his own sons, notably a man by the name of Jonathan, and a young shepherd boy by the name of David who would go on to uh, slay uh, a giant by the name of Goliath of Gath. Now, he succeeds in subduing several enemy nations around Israel. What he does not do, he does not do a good job of delegating responsibility. He does not do a good job of fortifying the cities and appointing noblemen and uh, ambassadors to sort of, I mean, we're talking, there's no internet, there's no telephone, there, there's, the passenger pigeon probably hasn't, hasn't even been discovered yet. Uh, so there's no way to transmit information aside from running on foot or taking a horse. So it was very important in these times for a king to think about the geography that he was in, how long does it take to get from A to B, from B to C, how do I make sure that I'm extending my rule? I'm one man, I have no cell phone, no internet, no email, there's no Canada Post. How do I make sure that all this territory is defended and there's good communication? Saul doesn't really do a good job of that. He has no mentor. That he had probably learned a little bit through his elders as to what a kingship should look like because they'd been hanging around with the Philistines for so long. But he fails to formalize a central administrative government. He doesn't really even have an identified capital. You might just assume he was ruling in Jerusalem. No. Jerusalem was under Jebusite control during Saul's entire reign. They didn't even go into Jerusalem. So he spends so much time fighting that he eventually... Uh, while he distinguishes himself as a warrior, he begins to make some mistakes. He disobeys Samuel. He violates some of the religious laws of the land. He starts to offer sacrifices that he shouldn't be offering. And basically, the nobility of Israel, which at that time were the judges and the Levitical priests, lose their cool with them. And what we will see, this is a very important thing for you to understand, is that almost every king in Israel and Judah were at the beck and call of the nobility. Even David, for all of his power, got in trouble with Nathan when he violated God's laws and slept with Bathsheba. And Nathan was a powerful man. Saul lost the faith of Samuel. And when David starts to then rise up and distinguish himself as a uh, potential rival, even though that wasn't David's intention, Saul demonstrates his insecurity by spending 
way more time than you'd expect any king of a nation to do, chasing one guy through the desert. He dies in battle with his strongest sons, and his weakest, his weakened kingdom is passed on to his incompetent son, Ishbosheth. And Ishbosheth, difficult name to pronounce, really has no idea what he's doing. And he becomes very afraid of David. So the household of Saul then is limited to two kings, Saul and his son Ishbosheth. Well, uh, in 1004 BC, we begin what is known as the household of David, David the Judite. He was from the tribe of Judah, and he rules from 1004 until 965 BC. His background was obscure. He comes from a shepherding family. He's the youngest son, but he distinguishes himself early on by killing a giant by the name of Goliath. He then becomes a captain among Saul's uh, fledgling army, and later he turns into a renegade in the wilderness as he's chased by Saul. And all of these experiences are actually formative experiences that help him to become one of Israel's greatest kings. He, during his time of quasi-exile, as he lives the life of a, a renegade in the wilderness, he establishes close working relationships with none other than the Philistines. And actually befriends the king of Gath. Now this probably explains why later when he was crowned king at Hebron, that the king of Gath didn't care because he would have viewed David as a vassal king that was going to extend his influence into Israel. The second thing that David does during his time as a renegade is he allies to his service several renegade men. Now this is very, very important to understand. David accumulates several hundred mismatched men and basically forms agreements with them based on loyalty. So in a sense, he's functioning as a quasi-military leader, a quasi-king while not being either, and has 600 buddies or so that just hang out with him because they like him. Well, this is a huge advantage for him when he becomes the king of Israel. Because he doesn't have people following him because he's got a plaque on his door that says king. They're following him because they like him. The second thing that's really, really important to understand about many of these men is they were not Jews. They were not Jews. One could even surmise that the majority of them were not Jews. And if you read through the Old Testament, you'll find names like Uriah the Hittite. A Hittite is not a Jew. But for various reasons, these would have been guys, and maybe, maybe they got into trouble with their kings, or maybe they were roaming about looking for better opportunities. They were young men, you know, living at large. And David rallies to his side several foreigners 
And these foreigners would later take the shape, uh, would later help him to shape his government. And over the coming centuries, the descendants of these foreigners would form a class of people, we could just call them the nobility, among the Israelis. Now they intermingled and intermixed with Jews, of course. But Israeli history from the very beginning of the monarchy had plenty of foreigners in government and plenty of foreigners among the nobility. And folks, this is why, while it was a blessing in some senses because it allowed David to ally himself with other kingdoms more easily, when Israel was under the vassalage of another kingdom, these people, with an awareness of their historic roots, would often revert to the gods of their ancestors, and it was a wide open highway for some of these gods to zoom right back into the center of worship in Jerusalem among the upper crests. This is why even king, later kings like uh, Ahab, who did not come from the line of Judah, but Ahab uh, has really no problems with several foreign deities being worshipped in his kingdom because behind the scenes there would have been maybe some pressure and if not pressure, a general acceptance of a diversity of gods because the nobility, the people that he was sort of accountable to, his parliament, so to speak, were composed largely of people with foreign backgrounds. You see, So this is an important thing that we often don't think about when we're reading the scriptures. But I'll just sort of you know, jump out of the, the lesson into a little bit of a mini-sermon and just say this, that Israel from the beginning experienced the same thing that we experience, pluralism. They lived in a very eclectic culture. They were in close proximity to foreigners and their gods. They had lots of foreigners living among them. They had lots of people of foreign descent in their nobility. And uh, they too had to constantly be on the lookout for how those foreign worldviews many of them godless, would affect their own culture and their own place of worship. So we've got to get out of our mind this idea that you know, Canada is somehow unique or we're at a point in history where it's more difficult to be a Christian than ever before because you know, we get all these people coming to our shores that are Muslims and Buddhists. It's been happening throughout time. And it was no different really for, for the, the Jews from the beginning of the monarchy onward. Okay. He was, yeah. Was it a conflict? Well, they obviously wanted to stick up for him. In fact, yeah. In fact, there's an event where after Saul dies, two guys who really like David go and kill uh, one of his sons, Saul's sons. And they basically come running to, um, running to David with his head, thinking that David is going to award them. David has them killed and buries... Uh, I can't remember the name of the person, that person's head in his best friend Abner's tomb. 
So that says a couple things about David. It probably speaks to his moral character that he recognizes as an appointment from God. Through political eyes, he wanted to make sure that he was guarding the concept of kingship as well. But certainly his men would have reacted to uh, any uh, threats that were levied against their, their friend who was also their king. So then David uh, settles in Hebron after Saul's death. And he rules there for seven and a half years. Likely unopposed by his Philistine friends. Well, eventually Ishbosheth is assassinated. And David is approached. He doesn't take it by force. He's approached to become the king of all of Israel. And so in his eighth year, he becomes the king of all of Israel. And for an additional 33 years, for a total of 40 and one half years, he, he is a king. One of his first acts as the king of, now it's the United Kingdom, not the UK that we know today, but the United Kingdom of Israel, is he attacks Jerusalem. Now the Jebusite said no one can take Jerusalem. Uh, a blind person and a lame person could push you off. This is a little chant they gave. But uh, one of his commanders, I think it was Joab, sneaks through the, the water tunnel, pops open the gates, David's men flood in, and they take Jerusalem from the Jebusites. Now what do we know about Jerusalem? Jerusalem was a city that had existed since ancient times. In the time of Abraham, it was known as Salem. And there was a king there by the name of uh, Melchizedek. We actually don't know what his name is because that's a title. You need to understand a couple of things. This might just help you in your reading of the Bible. Sometimes when you meet someone that has a quote-unquote name, it's actually not their name, it's a title. So Melchizedek, sec here. I'll just give you two examples from the Bible. Hopefully this one works. And Abimelech. These are both titles. Melchi means king. And Zedek means righteous. Uh, now, see this here? Melchi, Melech. Same root. This means father, and this means king. So when Abimelech took Abraham's wife, and then Abimelech took, a different Abimelech took Isaiah's, or sorry, uh, Isaac's wife, temporarily. They're both known as Abimelech. It's not a common name. These, these were local kings, father kings, or king of righteousness. So Melchizedek was the king of Salem, and in 1850 BC, the Jebusites come to Salem, which at that point has no wall. It's just a city on a hill. It's not defended. They capture Salem from the descendants of the people of Melchizedek, and they uh, form Jerusalem 
and they then build a wall around it. And that's the first time a wall is built in Jerusalem. And it is off-center from the hill where the temple uh, eventually stood. So in the time of David, the temple was just a, a hill. Now, some people believe that's where um, Abraham potentially was going to offer Isaac. right? So the very significant piece of land now. David captures it. He basically destroys portions of it, rebuilds some of it, and he adds this little outcrop onto the side of it, which overlooks the Kidron Valley. And that becomes known as the city of David. And that's where he establishes his rule. Now, why is this important from a political perspective? Look at our map. Where's my pointer? Look at our map. Northern kingdoms, southern kingdoms. Jerusalem. Notice where it is. Hill area, plains to the left, Transjordan Valley. It's kind of dead center to bring everybody together. So Jerusalem is not only a protectable area because it's on a hill. It's harder to fight uphill than downhill or on a flat area. But it also allows for the tribes in the north to feel connected to the tribes in the south. So it's a brilliant political move for David to establish his capital at Jerusalem. And it brings the tribes together and gives them, for the first time really, a capital. So geographical unity is important. And uh, it also gives David power. So as soon as he establishes his capital at Jerusalem, remember he was never bothered at Hebron by the Philistines. As soon as he establishes his capital at Jerusalem, all of a sudden there's a knock on the door. And it's the Philistines. We're going to kill you. But he repels them and in fact beats them. And now the king of Gath becomes his vassal. So not only has he shooed away the Philistines like Saul did, but now he makes them his vassal. And this propels David into an area of expansion and security. So David now expands and secures his borders. He takes all of this area. He takes Damascus. And get this, it won't show on this map. David's kingdom extended all the way to the Euphrates River. That's a, that's a huge area compared to modern-day Israel. I don't know how many, how many times you have to multiply their square kilometerage to get that, but we're talking, I'm just guessing, three, four, five times the land that they would have uh, uh, in later times even. So he, he's a, he is a, a brilliant warrior. Like Saul, he's a brilliant warrior. But the difference between Saul and David just looked at from historical perspective is David also functioned as a statesman. He became a consummate statesman. So for instance, he forged alliances with the king of Tyre in order to provide him with cedar, in order to provide him with building materials. And this is how these kinds of agreements allowed Israel to have a measure of commerce with other valuable allies. So he he conquers the people he needs to conquer. 
he forges treaties with the king of Tyre and others for the purpose of entering into commerce. And one of the other things that were to his advantage is that the, the traditional kingdoms that were ruling the Fertile Crescent were in decline during David's reign. Not because of David, they just happened to be in a period of decline, as was Egypt. Egypt had been in a period of decline for probably a few hundred years at this point. So it's a great opportunity for an opportunist to take land and expand his, his kingdom. So he then commands both the king's highway and the coastal road. So he's the man of the area. If you're going to go through this area, you've got to go through David. And as a result of his conquering of the Moabites and the Edomites, tributes, financial tributes begin to flow in from the conquered nation surrounding him. So not only does he have a tax base in the form of his people, but he now has access to the resources of the other nations that he has conquered who have become his vassals. You'll understand now why when Assyria centuries later expanded their kingdom, it was far more strategic. You don't just go in and kill everybody. You go in and you conquer and you make treaties because now you don't just have a bunch of you know, barren land with graves in it. Now you have people that have to send you money, perhaps for generations to come. So allowing your enemy to live and forcing them to pay you is far more strategic. It's a little more vulnerable because they might regain their strength, but it's far more strategic generation by generation than just leveling everything. He establishes a functioning administration that, unlike Saul, goes way beyond his family and his own tribal constraints. So if you look at the list of the names of the people that were his generals, that were you know, his key advisors, we're not talking about you know, all his brothers and cousins or even people from Judah. He does a great job of extending his rule. And as such, um, when his son Solomon becomes king, there is no contest for Solomon from the nobility. The nobility are silent. The only contest Solomon has is his two brothers, Saul, uh, uh, Absalom and Adonijah. But this is one of the, the most unique transfers of power in all of Israeli history, where when Solomon became the king, everyone was like, thumbs up. Why? Because they loved his dad. Because his dad had done a good job of connecting with a broad cross-section of society. So he establishes administrative districts. His army is well organized. He doesn't have a professional army. The first ruler, uh, probably in world history, to actually forge a professional army with Tigla was Tiglath-Pileser III, where he actually, the king of Assyria. We'll talk about him later tonight. He was the first world ruler that we know of that actually had a professional standing army where all these guys did was fight. Before that, you know, when Joab wasn't fighting, he was farming or doing whatever Joab did. You call the men up, but they had other jobs. But Tiglath-Pileser III had a professional army. Nevertheless, David had a competent army. And again, as you know, as I've mentioned, he's, in, he's incorporated several non-Jewish leaders. Now, near the end of his life, as he begins to wind down, the biblical text suggests that he sort of checks out. It's almost like he, 
uh, he's been going at that, going at this for so long that he sort of just goes off into his palace and does his own thing. Now he has some medical issues, but uh, they call a, a young woman in to be his nurse, Abishag, the Shumanite. And during his later years, his you know his sons sort of seem to be running amok. So he has this big, handsome son by the name of Absalom who almost like assumes the kingship behind his dad's back. And David doesn't really seem to care until everything sort of falls apart. And he ends up, uh, Absalom ends up losing his life from his David's generals. And um, then later on, his next born Adonijah, who's also described as handsome and big tough guy like his brother Absalom, he proclaims himself king without consulting his dad. And so Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, goes and says to David, you know that Adonijah has declared himself king. I mean, they need you to do something about this. I thought Solomon, the third born, was going to be king. And he's like, okay, I'll make him king. And he makes him king, and then Adonijah goes and runs, and he grabs hold of the altars because he thinks that Solomon's going to kill him, right? Well, Solomon says, no, I'm not going to kill you, but you've got to prove yourself to be a godly man. And then time goes by. We don't know, months, weeks, maybe a couple years, who knows. And Adonijah comes and visits Solomon one day and says, um... <clears throat> You know, you're the king now, and what is what is is what will be. But do you mind if I ask you for one request? It's like, sure. Um, you know, Abishag, you know, Dad's old nurse. Could I take her as my wife? I mean, she's an absolutely drop dead gorgeous woman. The text, most gorgeous woman in the whole land, right? Solomon immediately takes him out and has him killed. Why does he do that? Some single woman. She's not married. She was a virgin. Why not? Well, what you got to understand is something in the culture. What did Absalom do with his father's concubines as soon as he took the power from his dad? What did he do? He slept with his father's harem in public. Now, this was, in, in the mind of the culture, the ultimate offense to the father and a way of saying, I now have all my father's power. Because that which is only my father's, his harem, he's sleeping with them. So Jonathan understands that that is Adonijah's intention. That by sleeping with this young woman who was the closest to David in his final years, he was in a sense, he was declaring to his countrymen that I have my father's power. And because he does that, Jonathan has his head lopped off. Or Solomon has his head lopped off, see? So Solomon then um, sort of rallies at the 11th hour, or David sort of rallies at the 11th hour, installs Solomon, and it leads to security and continued prosperity. So after David's death, Solomon then rules from 965 to 928 BC. Again, he's not the oldest son. He's at least three down the the rung, but he becomes king. Now he occasionally did use the sword, notably on his own brother, when he had to, but we see a, a, a gradual sophistication developing among the Israeli kings. 
The first guy's a warrior, stinks at administration. The second guy is a warrior, but he's good at administration. The third guy doesn't have to fight that much. He, he can hold a sword when he needs to, but he's great at administration, and he's incredible in the area of economics and policy. So he becomes an economic and politically savvy king who essentially reigns uncontested, more or less, throughout his life. His job is no, not to expand the kingdom as David had, but to stabilize the kingdom. And he does a great job of it. The problem is, his, he does a great job through human eyes, but he doesn't do the greatest job through God's eyes. He expands his kingdom. This is deliberate. Okay? It's not just that he liked foreign women. He marries several foreign women because they are daughters and princesses of several foreign kings and therefore forges allegiances and alliances with everybody else. Who's going to attack Jerusalem when your daughters and granddaughters are there, right? Because you've given them to him, you know, the guy in Moab or the guy in Egypt or whatnot. A lot of political alliances. Now, uh, I read somewhere that in in Egypt, remember in Egypt how they had this kinky thing going on where the pharaohs really guarded their their families to the point that like brothers and sisters would marry or fathers and daughters would marry and you know all this kind of stuff. Like there was a lot of really incestuous relationships going on because they wanted to really keep the dynasty tight, right? Well, uh, in addition to that, it was virtually unheard of for Egyptian pharaohs to give their daughters to any foreign king anywhere. In fact, it might even be unprecedented, with the exception of Solomon, who marries one of the pharaoh's daughters. And this shows that Solomon is kind of the going concern for for the pharaoh even to allow that. That is that's a huge indicator of his international intrigue. And that expands. We have the, the, the queen of Ethiopia coming, the queen of Sheba, what we now know as Ethiopia, coming up to meet him, to hear, to hear from his wisdom and uh, to learn from him. Uh, one of the legends is, is that she went back pregnant with one of um, Solomon's children and that gave birth to the, uh, you know, a, a group of Jewish people in, in Ethiopia. But he does a great job in expanding his economy, his trade to international proportions. He builds Solomon's temple, the first kind of permanent temple structure, which stands, again, he's reigning 965 to 928, stands till around 586 BC until the Assyrians destroy it. Now, the other thing that Solomon does, which you need to understand, is instead of taxing and administrating the kingdom along tribal lines, he rearranges the districts. And he draws the borders different. So there's different districts in his kingdom that aren't necessarily the tribal borders. Now, why is this a genius move? Because what he does then is he centralizes power in different regions apart from tribal, uh, uh, what would be the word, um, allegiances. And by doing so, 
he he uh, assures that the tribe's internal power structures were sapped of a lot of their previous energy, and this minimizes the chances of tribes rising up against him. He, you know, it's like it's like in churches. If if people just kind of hang out in their little clans, that's dangerous for a church when they only associate with their family and everybody in leadership's in the same family. But if you can sort of break people up a little bit and not have these unhealthy cliques and people are building relationships across all these different socioeconomics, family back, it, it creates a healthy church. And the same thing uh, Solomon did. Now, he also had some huge flaws. He, I mean, he was... Um, when when his princesses would arrive on Israeli soil, he would allow them to continue worshiping their gods. And in fact, you know, go to some of their ceremonies himself. Secondly, he overtaxed the people almost to the point of uh, ruin. So there's one instance where he has to give away, I think, 10 or 20 cities in the north to the king of Tyre just to alleviate the debt on his kingdom. Because he undergoes massive building projects, he's importing, you know, peacocks and rhinoceros and elephants and, you know, baboons and gold and cedar wood and I mean, everything you can imagine is just flowing in. Uh, but the people pay the price and uh, perhaps some of the enemy nations around them around him began to get jealous. So daddy-in-law in Egypt dies and a new pharaoh takes the throne. Uh, his name is Shishak in Egypt. And at one point, one of Solomon's enemies, Jeroboam, runs to the south and hides out in Egypt. We're going to re-encounter him later. But he wasn't hanging out with Solomon's father-in-law. He was hanging out with the next pharaoh, we believe. So there was obviously some resentment for that pharaoh to allow someone who he knows is in opposition to Solomon, who married the previous pharaoh's daughter, to hang out in Egypt. And that's kind of where Solomon's life comes to an end. He dies powerful with a powerful nation, but the people are tired and weary because of the taxation that he has experienced. They've experienced under him. So then, it's his son Rehoboam's turn to reign. This is the third member of the house of Judah, or house of David the Judite. And Rehoboam reigns from 928 to 911. Now, Rehoboam is, is the guy that is uh, you know, credited with the destruction of the United Kingdom because he does not listen to the advice of the elders. He listens to the advice of his buddies who say, you know, let's tax them more. Uh, you know, my father's waist is the size of my, you know, the width of my little finger. Well, the people, I mean, they're literally at their wits end. They're like, forget it. We're done with you. So they call Jeroboam back from Egypt and he becomes their king. And the 10 tribes in the north split off and form a new nation. Now, Rehoboam was foolish, but you need to give the guy a little bit of a break. He was almost thrown into an impossible situation because of the decisions that his dad made, just from a human perspective. I mean, he, he inherited a, a bag of trouble. 
he inherited a lot of tension. And in his youth, he doesn't get it. I mean, he's not really that young. He's probably 40 years old when he becomes king. But he doesn't listen. He splits the kingdom. So then Rehoboam continues to rule uh, in the south, the nations of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and in part in the territory of Simeon. The Simeonites might have moved to the north by that point in time, but their historical territory was part of his. And basically, it's more like a, a tribal kingship. So it's not really national, certainly not international. He's more or less just ruling his own clan. And it's the northern nations really that have the land. I mean, they get all the good area up here, fresh water, most of the coastal plains, and Galilee and the Judite kings are more or less left with Nijev-like conditions. So it's, it's not really the, the greatest uh, situation, but nevertheless, that's the way things turn out. So uh, let's take a break, and then we will get into life in the divided kingdoms. We're going to look at Israel, and then we're going to look at Judah. Okay. Um, now we're into the divided kingdom. So the divided kingdom, just just a second, I'm going to grab, uh, I left my better markers in here. Okay, here's some dates. I'll flip this over. 922 is the divided kingdom. North and south. So this is north, south. This kingdom lasts to 722. This kingdom to 586. Okay, so the, keep that in mind. This kingdom was known as Judah. And this kingdom was known as Israel. These kings were all Judite kings, every single one of them. Here you have about 10 different families. Sometimes they go two generations and someone bumps them off. There's about 10 different family lines, give or take, among the Israeli kings up to 722. What are the events that precipitated the division, heavy taxation, and Rehoboam's refusal to submit to the will of the elders in the northern kingdom. So let's go through the list. We're not going to touch on everyone. We're going to touch on most of them. But uh, we'll just highlight certain aspects of the kings. We're going to start, for the sake of simplicity, with the northern kings and follow their journey for 200 years through to seven. 22. First guy is Jeroboam. He, we would know him as Jeroboam the first because a couple centuries later there was a guy named Jeroboam the second, who wasn't even from his family line but had the same name. So uh, Jeroboam rules in the north in Israel. He has more people, better land, and in a sense, more land or access to more land. 
he was able to keep Moab and Ammon as his vassals, even though they were previously vassals of the whole kingdom. Based upon his power and their proximity, he was able to sort of control the Transjordan. And he establishes Shechem. I don't think it's on this map, but he establishes Shechem as his first capital. He uh, is a um, king that brings into his kingdom several uh, pagan gods and allows them to be worshipped. So he's he's not considered a good king from a um, religious perspective. By the way, here's the list. So northern kings, if there's an arrow between the fellas, that means that that's his son, unless otherwise specified. If there's a dash, that means it's a new family. So Jeroboam, the first son, Nadab, takes control, but then he's killed, and Basha assumes a kingship, and they're unrelated. So that's just kind of how I, I laid this out for you. Then we have Basha. So he rules from 906 to 883. He kills Jeroboam's son, Nadab, and rules Israel. He rules for uh, some, I guess it would be close to 20 years, and he is able to ally himself with Damascus, which had been lost. Uh, you know, David had previously conquered it, but it, it, was, it was no longer under their control. He's able to form an alliance with Damascus and win back a portion of Ephraim, Ephraim's territory that Judah initially retained when the kingdom was, was split up. What he does is he tries to fortify a city just to the north of Jerusalem by the name of Ramah. And his intention is, if I can fortify it, then I'm sort of within a stone's throw of Jerusalem. If I can build that area up, then I can go in and invade the capital of Judah, and then all of Judah will be mine. However, he fails and has to withdraw. Now, after him, a series of men try to uh, usurp the throne with varying successes. And the next... Uh, so we have Elah, and then Zimri basically kills off his family. So we're going to skip ahead now to Omri and Ahab, who this kind of a dynasty of sorts, sometimes known as the Omriite dynasty. Omri rules for a long time and actually becomes not a good king, but he's a powerful king. And between him and Ahab, his son, they rule from 882 to 852. They are... Um, father and son kings, and they established Samaria. So we'll just skip back here. You can see Samaria there up under the S on the word Israel. Right there. There's its proximity to Jerusalem. They established uh, Samaria as their capital. But here's how they do it. They don't walk into Samaria and say, oh, there's a bunch of people living here. We're going to make this our capital. They buy it. And so the, the, the city itself is the first instance of uh, the royalty owning the capital city. Well, this puts them at a huge advantage. They own the capital city. They now have uh, the, the, the capital becomes, in essence, royal property. And this just kind of solidifies them 
uh, puts their stamp into the earth and allows them to rule in a place that they also legally own as a family unit. Under their reign, the nation stabilizes and expands and enjoys economic prosperity, even conquering once again the Moabites. They do, however, not worship Yahweh. And so these are the fellows that incite the wrath of the great prophet Elijah. Just to put this in biblical context. Ahab marries a wonderful woman by the name of Jezebel, who any of us would be honored to name our daughters after. And they have a daughter by the name of Athaliah, who marries one of the kings of Judah, and after he dies, becomes the queen of Judah. She's the daughter of Ahab. So fast forwarding from 800 onward, Israel grows weaker overall. There's various ups and downs depending on who's ruling. And Tiglath-Pileser, I'll write his name up here. I'm probably not even pronouncing it properly, but... Got to get the third going. The third. He takes the throne of Assyria. Remember the Assyrians up north? Babylon, Assyria. He takes the throne of Assyria, basically assassinates the royal family of Assyria. And this he reigns from 745 till 727. You might say, well, who cares? What does that have to do with what's going on down in Israel? It has a whole lot to do with it. Because he takes Assyria and turns it into the Assyrian Empire, virtually in one generation. Forms a professional army and basically beats the tar out of dozens of surrounding countries. Rules basically the entire Fertile Crescent from Mesopotamia down through Israel, Egypt, right into, uh, sorry, down through Israel and Judah, right down into Egypt. Um, now, during this time, Israel and Judah become vassal kingdoms of Tiglath-Pileser, the Assyrians. Now, his success, successor, a fellow by the name of Shalmaneser V, so he's the next king after Tiglath, realizes that Israel, the northern kingdom, is starting to revolt against him. You know, they're not paying their dues. They're starting to stir up a little bit of problems. They're trying to shake off the bondage of their captors. And so he challenges the Israeli revolt, and he takes Samaria uh, in 722. It took him three years. A three-year siege against the city to, to break through the walls. And he then takes the people, and he banishes them uh throughout his realm. Now the full banishment takes a while. So by the time it's actually in full swing, he's died and a fellow by the name of Sargon II. Now we talked about the name Sargon a couple classes ago as one of the rulers of Mesopotamia. Remember I showed you that mask with the eyes chopped out? Many people think that might be Sargon I. Totally unrelated, 
But this guy would have adopted his name from history. It's like, you know, naming yourself Hercules. You're not related, but you want to seem tough. So he takes the name Sargon as his own. And he's the guy really that's responsible for uh, taking the people of Israel and spreading them around. So the kingdom of Israel comes to a final end. And I mean final in 722 BC. Never to been revived even up to 2015 AD. Okay? Now, a uh, little cultural insight. Remember we talked about vassalage. So vassalage, instead of wiping everybody out, you go in, you conquer, and you'd make demands now for as long as you can. Very different than how we do it today, but that's how they did it. Second thing that's different than what you'll see in modern culture is many of these kingdoms, when they would go in, they would take out of the conquered nation the artisans, the nobility, the politicians, members of the royal family, people with special skills, the prophets, the religious leaders, and they would export them back to their land, and they would integrate these men into their government, just like David had integrated foreigners into his government. And these people would become ministers, governors, lords and noblemen. Some of them would be treated, frankly, way better in captivity than they were back home. A couple examples of that from the southern kingdom, that's what happened to men like Daniel. They were, Daniel would have been from the noble class, and when he was taken to Babylon, he was serving in a foreign king's court. You're like, shouldn't he be like in jail or out breaking rocks in a field? No, he's a smart guy, a literate guy, so he, was, he became a member of the government, and that's what happened. They would assimilate all these people, and then in the areas that they'd taken people from, they would bring other people in. So mix and match everybody up. That way, with the different languages and different cultures, the land was tamed because there was people there. They were your subjects because you'd beaten them, but they, they're, they're less likely to sort of form allegiances or rise up against you. So when the Assyrians took the northern kingdom, members of the nor northern kingdom into Assyria, they brought in people from other conquered nations to fill the gap. And the remaining Jews... And these new people groups intermingled and formed a new uh, people group called the Samaritans. Okay, so the good Samaritan. Half Jews, half whatever else. And there's little, little less than 800 of them still on planet Earth today, as we speak. Now, the southern kingdom starts under Rehoboam. You know, he starts off as under the United Kingdom, but he basically rules Judah. And as I mentioned, it's more of a tribal nation. Uh, here's the line of southern kings. They're all related, by the way. Um, his kingdom, in some senses, is more politically stable because the southern kingdom goes with a hereditary monarchy, meaning that they were quite comfortable with father, son, father, son, father, son ruling. So there's nobody else ever stepping in and taking the kingdom away. That wasn't the precedent in the north. But in the south, there's not the kind of infighting and, and uh, 
uh, danger associated with being a king of Judah as there is with being a king of Israel. The Levites. Who are the Levites? The priestly class or tribe. They align themselves more heavily with Judah. They'll basically move to the south. Why? Because the first king of Judah, even though he wasn't a great guy, was a Yahwist. Jeroboam I was an eclectic, I worship anything I want kind of guy. So the Levites, who are Yahwists, moved to the south. And Rehoboam more or less enjoys a stable monarchy, but it's a pittance of the former kingdom. Shishak comes up, doesn't really attack him per se. He's probably more interested in what's going on in the north, trying to open up the coastal highway. But the threat is there, and so in order to ward off the attack, Rehoboam basically gives away all his money out of the royal treasury, and he diminishes Judah then economically. So it gets by, but it's like a lower class kind of weak kingdom compared to what was going on around it. Then from 908 to 867, uh, just skipping ahead here, the next king I want to touch on is Asa. Asa is able to secure the northern border from Basha. So remember Basha came down, was trying to build Ramah up because he wanted to attack Jerusalem. I mentioned that under the Israeli kingship. Asa is the guy that is able to strengthen that border and repel him. He also successfully pushes back a southern threat from the Cushites, probably uh, that's an ancient name for either the Ethiopians or the Egyptians. There's debate about that. He purges Judah of paganism, various forms of paganism which, is, which have taken root. And um, nevertheless, there is some measure of civil disobedience during his reign because some people just don't really like him. After that is Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat reigns from 870 to 846. He uh, reestablishes Yahweh worship by sending Levites throughout the kingdom as teachers to te- reteach people Yahweh worship. Uh, culturally, he does have some problems because the nobility in his kingdom, which he inherited from his forefathers, are from a mixed bag of ethnic backgrounds. Start to bring in some of their views. Uh, of other gods or how things should be done, exert pressure on him. And so during his reign, there's sort of a flip-flop back and forth from idolatry to Yahweh worship, idolatry to Yahweh worship. And it's probably not coming from him. It's probably coming from his inability to reign in his nobility. He probably, we don't know this for a fact, but he probably was the first Judite king to divide Judah into new administrative districts. He succeeded in reforming, modernizing, and expanding his army. And more or less, under Asa, the kingdom enjoyed stability and got along with Israel. Okay, so um, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, Jehoram marries Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. They have a son named Ahaziah. So Jehoram's the dad, he dies, his son reigns, but then he dies, his mom takes the throne. 
before Ahaziah's son, Jehoash, is able to be put back on the throne. So we've got to talk about Athaliah a little bit. She reigned just for four years from uh, 842 to 836. And upon the death of her son, she becomes the queen. And what she does is she popularizes Phoenician cult worship in Israel, in Judah. The Phoenicians are the people from Tyre. We're not sure what her connection was there, but this is her, these are her cults of choice. And what she tries to do is kill off all the potential seed kings of Judah. So she's like the matriarch of the family and she's wiping out her you know, sons and grandsons and everything else. But she fails to kill one of her, uh, her grandsons, Joash. And um, he eventually takes the throne. But in the meanwhile, uh, you know, she sort of rules supreme and is just as wicked as her father Ahab and her mother Jezebel. She's executed. Joash begins to reign. He also is heavily influenced by the secularism of the noble class and often caves into their desires, which results in his own assassination. So the next guy on the list that we're going to look at is um, uh, Amaziah. Okay, yeah, Amaziah. So the uh, replacement of uh, an assassinated king by his own son, one might say, doesn't make a lot of sense, right? So you kill the dad and then you agree to replace him with his son. Aren't you sort of setting yourself up? But again, the way we can explain this is that regardless of who was king, the noble nobility felt they were ruling the throne and the country behind the scenes. So just as we sometimes will say like there's a puppet king or a puppet prime minister, a puppet president who has the top post, but really he's being controlled by everyone else. That was probably the scenario. So they put Amaziah, the nobility agrees to put Amaziah on the throne because they want to recognize the legitimacy of the kingship by hereditary rule. So if anybody challenges them, they can stand beside him and say, no, he's a legitimate king, but then speak out of both sides of their mouths and say, you know, we're going to cut him down if he doesn't serve our wishes. So this is the dynamic that some of these kings were under. So we might look at them and say, oh, that's a bad king. Wouldn't name my kid after him because he brought in Baal worship. True, but the pressure of some of these young, on some of these young men, humanly speaking, was pretty incredible. And I don't think they went to king's school before they sat on the throne. He overextended himself in battle. And at one point he was captured by the king of Israel, who in turn then came and sacked Jerusalem. And he tried to flee. He must have been released during that. He tried to flee, but he was Amaziah was ultimately killed. So then from, uh, from 800 to 722, the period of time within which uh, the northern kingdom is declining to their exile, various things took place. We'll just kind of touch on them in broad strokes. Public work projects were sometimes undertaken. Sometimes land was recovered under men like Uzziah and the kingdom would enjoy a rebound and then it would sort of dive bomb again. Uh, Uzziah's son, Jotham, so where is he in our list? Okay, fourth, one, two, three, fifth lineup. Jotham, he's an interesting guy. 
as Assyria rises to power, Israel in the north starts to rebel, right? That brings the Assyrian army down to capture them. What he does, <coughs> from a political perspective, <coughs> excuse me, is pretty smart. He takes a pro-Assyrian stance in his government. He doesn't mind being a vassal king, and so he's undisturbed by the Assyrians during the zenith of their power. But this bothered Israel and some of their allies, allied kingdoms in the area, who were trying to band together to overthrow the Assyrian Empire. And um, they ultimately flounder, the northern kingdom ultimately flounders against it uh, because of their stance, but the southern kingdom is able to last, you know, another, what, hundred and whatever some odd years because Jotham takes an alternative view and sort of rolls with the punches, so to speak. Now, the Israeli kings did their best to try to oust Jotham and his son Ahaz from the throne of Judah and from a distance install a more anti-Assyrian king. But they did not succeed at doing that. Instead, under Ahaz, the son of Jotham, he calls the Assyrians down to help defend his territory from his brothers, the Israelites, to the north as their vassal. He's like, hey, I'm your vassal. I'm following you here. My big brother in the north is picking on me. I need your help. So the Assyrians march in and help them out. And so they survive to fight another day. No, that was Manasseh, I believe. Yeah. I'm not sure. You have to look at the kings in First Chronicles. I'm not, I, I can't remember. So 722 to 586. So from the northern, the northern guys, they're gone now. Judah remains. What's going on there? Okay, so we have Hezekiah. Hezekiah is the son of Ahaz, and he rules Judah. He also chooses not to cause waves with Assyrian power structures. And so under his rule, uh, Judah is also stabilized. He rules from 727, five years before the northern uh, exile, right through to 686, 100 years before his kingdom would be taken. Hezekiah participates in at one point in a pro-Babylonian plot. So the Babylonians to the north of the Assyrians are now trying to flex their muscle. They're growing. And he's like, okay, I, I think I like those guys better than the Assyrians. So for a brief period of time, he participates in a uh, pro-Babylonian plot involving several nations to try to overthrow Assyria. And as a result, kind of gets himself into trouble with Assyria. And so he decides to further fortify Jerusalem. And this is a picture of what is famously known as Hezekiah's Tunnel, which you've probably all heard of. Hezekiah's Tunnel is 700, or no, 533 meters long. And from one end of the tunnel, if I, if I have my facts correct, it could be a little off, from one end of the tunnel to the other, the gradation is the length of a ruler, 30 centimeters or so, but a foot. So just a nice, gentle slope. 
Now, I've walked through this. It's pretty cool. If you're claustrophobic, don't go. But uh, I think we started at the Gihon then, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we started at that end, Susie and I. So you, you walk into it, and you take your, basically you roll up your pants, take your socks and shoes off, put them in your backpack or whatever. So it, if I remember, it's about ankle deep. And it's like a perfect flow. It never gets deeper, never shallower. It's the exact same all the way through from one end to the other. It's about just a little bit bigger than shoulder width. And when you're at about the halfway point, suddenly you, you kind of like, let's say you're coming like this, you got to stop and kind of do this little dog leg. Because what they did, they calculated this out. The tunnelers, this is solid rock. There's no dirt. Pickaxed through, somehow maintaining that grade. And they were just off by, I think, four feet or something. So they had to create the little dog leg. As you can see, like on the walls, all the pickaxe marks. And it's anywhere, I'm just thinking from maybe um, s seven feet, about a foot above my head, up to maybe a part where they had some loose rock. They might have to dig it out, maybe 10, 10 or 12 feet high. But anyway, this is an a engineering marvel. I, I loved going through there. But yeah, I mean, you're, you know, several hundred meters in, you're like, man, this is, this is, this is kind of intense. I hope I... I dropped my flashlight in the water. No. No, there's no lights. You just take your flashlight. But my flashlight, it was just those chintzy little ones that got it from the tourist guy. It must have been waterproof. I just pulled it up and... Uh, just a little bit... Like maybe, I don't know, 30 inches. Yeah. Well, you can see there. So it's about, it's more or less the size of a person, a few inches wider, maybe a, a foot or so taller. And what he did was he did this so that he could withstand indefinitely a siege on his walls and still have access to the Gihon Spring water so that it would flow from the Gihon Spring outside into the Pool of Shalom, and he would always have fresh water. And that's kind of important when you're being attacked for three years, right? Mm -hmm. By a king. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. Anyway, the next king of Assyria, his name was Sennacherib. And he reigns after Sargon II. And he puts down the Babylonian uprising in the north. And then he marches out to show his power to Judah and others who had usurped Assyrian rule. So Hezekiah... You might recall in the Bible, Sennacherib's at his doors, sort of yelling and hollering and everything else. And for whatever reason, he leaves, but Hezekiah resubmits to his rule. So Hezekiah's kingship is, as again, as a vassal king of Assyria. Then there's Manasseh. So Manasseh, under Manasseh, he remains a vassal of Assyria. But Manasseh does not worship Yahweh, but enjoys a long rule from uh, 698 to 642. And again, he was an evil king, but you got to understand part of his, part of the requirements of being a vassal is to allow Assyrian gods to be worshipped in his territory. He, he really couldn't stop that politically. So he, he wasn't allowed to speak. He, obviously, he didn't want to either. He was a bad guy, but even the Yahwist kings, if they were Yahwist kings at a given point in time, but they inherited 
a predicament where a situation where they were vassals, you know, how do you kick out the Phoenician cults? How do you kick out the Assyrian uh, uh, god worship, the Shemosh worshippers? That was one of the gods of Assyria with a C-H, C-H-E-M-O-S-H, Shemosh. How do you kick them out without infuriating the Assyrians, right? So you're kind of in a catch-22, kind of like in our culture. How do you speak out against certain moral evils when people say, well, if you do that, we're going to throw you in jail, like the homosexuality thing, right? So it's kind of a catch-22. Do I pick the fight or do I not pick the fight? And these are the kinds of dynamics that some of these ancient kings found themselves in, which are not really not that all that different substantively than the, some of the situations we find ourselves in. Uh, then we have, um, um, oh, Manasseh. Let me, let me go back to my list here. Manasseh, Ammon, and, okay, yeah, Manasseh. You know, I might, I might be getting this one wrong because it's, it's not ringing a bell in my head, but I'm going to say it's Manasseh, but I might be wrong. Uh, Manasseh is briefly chained and taken to Babylon for his part in an attempted rebellion against the Assyrians, but then he's later returned to the throne. I'm pretty sure it's him and not his son. Briefly during his long reign, he rebels against the Assyrians, taken all the way to Babylon, brought all the way back. That's a long journey. Kind of teach him a lesson. So then Ammon reigns very briefly, so that's his son, and Ammon reigns uh, for one year, one to two years, nine, uh, 641 to 640, and then he's killed, and so a boy king, Josiah, I have a son named Josiah, as you know, he takes the throne at the age of eight. That's pretty young, but really, you wonder, how does an eight-year-old reign? Well, you got the nobility and mom's there and yada 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 so he he's installed as king and under josiah the kingdom has some stability because now under his kingship two benefits he had the assyrian kingdom was finally waning and the egyptians weren't doing so well in the south so he he's had a good time in history and he reintroduces yahweh worship now, it's said that Yahweh worship was so unpopular at the time that people didn't even know about it. So he like rediscovers the law. They're basically doing a, you know, a Saturday morning work project. I guess it wouldn't be Saturday, that would be the Sabbath. A Sunday morning work project in the temple cleaning it out. Someone's like, oh, I just found this book. Oh, it's the Torah. What's that? So the situation has become that bleak. So he reintroduces Yahweh worship in Israel. And what this also does is it aids in their sense of national identity as they read about God's redemption and formation of them as a people from ancient times. He tries to stop Pharaoh Necho from moving through Palestine in, an, in a likely attempt to win over pro-Assyrian tribes and nations. But Josiah um, is pro-Babylonian at this point. So the Egyptians are kind of more in love with the Assyrians. Josiah is more into the Babylonians. He may even have been a, uh, in some sort of an agreement with the Babylonians. So he goes to battle against the Egyptians, and he's killed at Megiddo in the north. So now this is kind of interesting how this happens. His middle son is appointed as the king. 
So here's the rundown. Where's Josiah? Okay. This is his middle son. So his middle son's appointed as the king. And um, he's almost immediately dethroned by the pharaoh, who had beaten his dad, in favor of his older brother, Jehoiakim. So middle guy, just sitting on the throne, he's thrown off. Jehoiakim's put on the throne. Then the Babylonian king attacks, beats Pharaoh Necho in 605, and installs as his vassal king, Josiah's third-born son, Zedekiah. And then he takes the older brother, so the second king, to Babylon, and he lives out the rest of his days in peace and prosperity and has a good old time. Just as many of the cream of the crop of Jerusalem were, unfortunately, his brother, youngest brother Zedekiah, rules for about 10 years from 596 to 586, and he is pro-Babylonian, uh, but he later rebels. So first he's into the Babylonians like his dad, but then he rebels. So the Babylonians come down, and they not only kill the guy, they torture him first, kill him. He's off the throne now. And then, just very briefly, after the captivity, the son of Jehoiakim, the oldest brother, who's the second king, becomes the king. So it's, 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 it's kind of a, a complicated uh, situation. But at this point then, the Babylonians, because of Zedekiah, sack Jerusalem and destroy Solomon's temple. And uh, the land is then overrun by marauders, Ammonites move in, Moabites, and they just take everything. And Israel and Judah in 586, now north and south, are, are laying in waste. So there's, there's no kingship. Both nations have been conquered. And for the next 70 years, Judah will uh, be in, Babylonian, in Babylonia in captivity until they start to trickle back into the land under Nehemiah and Ezra and those fellows. A.D. Yeah, so 1,200 years later. Yeah, this is still B.C. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so that's a, a brief overview of the period of the monarchy of Israel. So next next week... Next week, we want to try to understand what life was like in the exile and what was taking place not only in Babylonia with the exiles, but what was going on in Israel for the next, the land of Israel for the next uh, 70 years. So we'll talk a little bit about that history as well. Okay. So uh, enjoy your evening. We'll see you next week.